Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Eric Shoykit, founder and CEO of Adam Finance. As an institutional analyst at Blackstone and Governors Lane, Eric had access to enterprise platforms like CapIQ and Bloomberg. He quickly identified the massive information gap between those platforms and what was readily available to retail investors via platforms like Yahoo Finance. Eric founded Adam Finance in 2018 to bridge the gap and provide the same market research resources, traditionally available only to Wall Street professionals, into the hands of any investor via a powerful intuitive platform that works anywhere. Since starting in 2018, Adam Finance has raised more than $18 million in venture capital from the likes of Graycroft, General Catalyst, and others. In this episode, we go through how this company got started, what Eric's done to grow it since, and where he's looking to go in the future. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Eric Shoykit, founder and CEO of Adam Finance. Eric, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you taking the time and excited to talk about Adam Finance and the things you've done with this company in only a, four, a few short years here. For people who aren't familiar, what are you doing with uh, Adam Finance? So we're building a best-in-class financial information and research platform that is built in kind of a modern product-centric way that is accessible to a larger audience than you know this sort of software and information has been um, kind of privy to that audience uh, previously. Um, it's kind of been more, you know, premium content and information related to public markets has really been exclusively something that, you know, institutional investors have traditionally had. Um, and generally, it's only been accessible in very clunky and, and very expensive platforms. So our whole mission is to present that same level of quality content and data and sophisticated tools, but in a very easy and seamless way to use, and ultimately at a you know price point that is accessible. Yeah, the, the pricing of these other tools are—it's kind of insane how expensive they are. And to that point, why did you decide to start this company, and how did you decide like, okay, I want to go after this, I want to actually pursue this? Mm-hmm. I'm curious. So I've always been a uh, super passionate public markets investor. It's, it's something you know I've always loved to do. I, I think it's a privilege. Um, and I, I think, you know, private markets and, and VC investing to some extent is similar. I think it's a privilege to be able to get paid to, you know, learn and to learn about businesses. Um, and I think the, the great thing about public markets, which, you know, is not necessarily the case in private markets, but ultimately there is a kind of reckoning, is that, you know, there's always a scoreboard, right? And, and I don't think markets are necessarily, uh, you know, perfectly rational in the short term, but I think over you know, medium to long periods of time, right? Ultimately, the the market does generally do a good job of assessing um, business quality and business performance. And so I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to, you know, take a view on a business, learn about a company, learn about an industry. And, you know, if you're right and the market ultimately agrees with your assessment of that, you you can profit from that. And I think that's super fun. And I've always been a, you know, a passionate investor. And then I spent some time uh, at Blackstone in the restructuring group there and then went off to, help uh, launch a hedge fund um, that was uh, spun out of Eden Park, did that for a few years and covered a bunch of different sectors and just got the itch to do something more operationally intensive and didn't really actually know what I wanted to do when I left my fund. 
But this is just a space that, you know, I'm kind of addicted to and super deep in and have always felt as a user um, of the products in the institutional space that, you know, there's really no need for some of those products to be priced at 10 or 30K a year. And obviously, I think even if they were more accessible, I think the way they're built in terms of, you know, kind of the the functionality and how complicated it is to do certain things um, would not really make them viable products for a kind of a larger audience, right? I don't think it's a um, kind of a, a, a something you would want as a as a product developer that your product takes three months to learn how to use. I don't think that's a, you know, something you should aim for. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, I think there's that dynamic. And then when I left, obviously was kind of using, you know, I wasn't paying 10 or 30K a year out of my pocket. And so it was kind of left with, you know, the various brokerage apps and things like Gallup Finance and Google Finance and just felt that, you know, those were just underwhelming experiences and, and didn't solve for, I think, a level of sophistication and, and product quality that I thought was necessary for a certain subset of the retail investing market. But I think a certain subset that I felt would grow and, and kind of become larger as, um, you know, the retail investing space grew. And so set out to build a better platform that, you know, had that sort of same quality content, data and tools that I was used to in the institutional space. But, you know, that did in a way where it was, you know, a product you could quickly learn how to use and get value out of and obviously didn't price it in a way that would make it inaccessible. With that as well, Eric, I mean, what were some of the the hurdles you had to jump over to get this off the ground to get like even version one of, of Adam Finance Live? I'm curious. Yeah. So the, you know, the early stages of developing product obviously are always brutal, um, you know, because you're starting <laughs> from scratch. Um, <laughs> from zero. So from zero. I think the, the real challenge here is, well, there's, there's two pieces. So obviously, you know, building the front end UI is one thing, um, which for this sort of product it is not trivial because there's so many different use cases and functionalities that you can build. And there's, you know, even for the same type of, um, you know, even for the same type of person, they're, you know, in the same job or the same type of investor, the things they care about could be very different and their specific use cases could vary. So you have to have a good breadth of product to have a good suite of features that would give you kind of a, a, a large enough address audience. However, you have to make sure that you're doing that without making the product too complicated and, and too heavy and that when a new user enters that product, you know, they're not overwhelmed with like a bunch of different potential features, right? So there, there's that element. And then there's also the whole data um, and content ingestion and provider piece, um, which is pretty complicated in this space. There's a bunch of different data providers. They're pretty old school. Um, you know, sometimes they're, they're decently hard to integrate with. And, you know, now... We have over 10 data providers and content partners. But, you know, when we started, we had to figure out kind of, okay, what are the core, core information sets and pieces that we really need to have on the platform? And like, let's go focus on building those relationships and get those deals signed initially, um, because that's that, that's highest priority. But you know, from there, we've obviously grown and partnered with some great companies on on the data and, and content side. But that that piece takes a while. Uh, and you may <laughs> want to move fast, but signing those deals, just, just it just takes a while to build that ingestion infrastructure to kind of build out the platform. So that was really the, you know, those were the two kind of key, I think, challenges in the beginning. But the, you know, we were able to kind of, you know, just fight through that and, and really started working on the platform at the end of 2018. And kind of the web MVP was essentially built in the first three quarters of 2019. To that point, in that in that process of figuring out, okay, you have to prioritize what 
this is going to look like initially because you're not going to have everything you mm-hmm. want to have on it. What were some of those customer discovery, you know, questions or calls or things you were kind of mm-hmm. getting information around with that to decide on what the the first versions was going to be? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, there's always two ways to, I think, go about building a product uh, like this. One is to obviously go interview customers and say, hey, what are your pain points? You know, what can we help build for you? you know, that sort of workflow, which I think is super important. In this case, because I just know this space so well and I've used every product, I really just built for <laughs> myself. Um, so I was the, you know, and I wasn't necessarily just building for, because obviously I'm a specific type of investor. I, 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 the beauty of having done this for a while is I, I understand beyond just myself, like different types of investors. And generally speaking, what different segments of the investing world, what those sorts of users would want. And so I was just essentially product czar and was like, look, this is what we need to build for the MVP to have something that we could show people that we could get initial users from, get initial traction, raise initial capital. And so that was just, I was kind of PMing uh, that, especially, you know, in the first half of 2019. Raising initial capital, you just mentioned there. How did that fundraising process go for you initially? Uh, I didn't, your first time founder mm-hmm. here as well. So I'm curious as how how that went for you, Eric. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because I've always been, uh, you know, I, I hadn't invested in private markets, but I've always been kind of on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, being the annoying, you know, hedge fund analyst asking, <laughs> you know, way older public management teams like questions about their performance and, you know, probably they, they, they're not always super happy to like have to answer some like 20, 28 year old uh, who thinks he's hot shit. Um, but, you know, so I, I've been on the other side. So I think... The, the one advantage of that is I, I understand very well how investors think. I think I'm, you know, able to kind of frame, uh, you know, kind of a larger investment opportunity in a lens that they would understand. I think the other thing is that this is just a great space, um, right? It's software. Um, you know, the, the financial data space is massive. There's a lot of dollars floating around to capture. Um, and so I think because of that, it is a, you know, a good space to think about disrupting and capturing value in. Um, but I, look, it's always hard as a first-time founder. Um, you know, you get the traditional questions. Well, you know, I'm sure you know you understand the space, and I'm sure you know what a good product may look like. But like, how do I know you can actually build one? How do I know you can build a team? How do I know you can execute? And I think as a first-time founder, you don't necessarily have good answers to those questions because there's nothing necessarily you can point to, other than you know, trust me, this is why I'm doing this. Uh, <laughs> this is why I'm passionate about the space. This is why I think I can build something. And that's it. You have to convince people. Um, and so I think, you know, that, especially being a first-time founder, that is a, is a much bigger challenge in terms of raising capital. And you raise again, I mean, just to take it a little bit far on the raising capital side of things, obviously raising your initial funding is one thing, but also raising the Series A. What lessons do you take into that as you've raised additional capital compared to maybe the early days of, of raising capital for Adam Finance? Yeah, so obviously, they look, the, you know, very early seed rounds are usually like, okay, you have some you know, proof of concept or you have a general idea or, you know, you, you have a space you want to go after, et cetera. I think, um, you know, really for incremental, like for future rounds after that, it's really about setting out what the key objectives are going to be for the company and then like hitting them. Or if you don't hit them and you pivot or you change something, like having a very good and clear explanation for why uh, that happened. So I, I think it's about, and I, I think you see this in, actually, I think there's a great lesson here for public markets. So you often, like, you'll get a lot of people who, like, will pitch a stock and like, oh, you know, this stock trades at this valuation and it's a discount to the, the, the similar peer companies, right? And then you'll look into it and it'll always be like, 
hmm, well, this one has like a way sharer management team, right? And so I think the bottom line is public markets reward consistent execution, um, even if you have two assets that are kind of similar in terms of quality. And the reason is that there's consistent, like people like consistency, right? If you think about like a, you know, people like consistent returns, people like consistent performance. And there's a lot of reasons why that's important, especially if you get an adverse, like, you know, external shock. And I think it's the same thing with running a company. Um, investors reward, you know, clear and consistent execution, and they reward execution against the plan. And so I think raising incremental rounds of capital, even as an early stage company, is really about doing that. I think it's about saying, hey, you know, we just raised this round of financing. This is how we're going to deploy this capital. These are the high ROI things we're going to do with it. And this is our timeline for doing that. And then you check in with them consistently over time as you're doing that. And I think generally speaking, if you have a you know good product and you're in a solid space and you're not in a catastrophic fundraising environment, if you do that and you consistently hit um, kind of the explained plan of action that you gave you know, previously, I think you'll be able to raise capital. One thing I'm, I keep thinking of as, as we're talking here is just thinking about the space at the time you decide to go after this. You didn't really see competitors necessarily in the space, in the market. Why do you think that was? It's only a few years ago. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I've, you know, I, I got asked that a lot uh, when we were raising money. You know, well, why hasn't someone done this, blah, blah, blah. And the answer is like there, there have been people who have tried, uh, you know, smaller niche things that, you know, probably haven't heard of. I think what, what really happens is that if, if you, so if you take a step back in this industry, right? So you, you look at the brokerage business. The brokerage business started out where you would call someone on the phone, right? And they would, you know, go put in a trade for you. Right. And then they would come back to you four hours later and be like, okay, I filled your 10 shares of Microsoft at, you know, uh, you know, 38 and one third or whatever. <laughs> I mean, <these> trade, <laughs> trade in, trade in fractions. Um, and so then those companies obviously discovered the internet and they were like, okay, why don't we let people, you know, click buy, sell on a website, right? So that, that's, that was V2. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of evolved. And then there was obviously phones. And so people were like, okay, we need to have apps, et cetera. But those companies have always been, you know, financial businesses, right? Like the brokerage businesses are, the way they make money is, you can actually just look at how they make money, right? They, they make money from interest on the float, right? So the assets that are held in those brokerage accounts, they make money from trading commissions, um, and they make money now, or some of them do, um, from selling order flow, right, to hedge funds. So those are the revenue drivers. And none of those are software revenue streams, right? So they've always built the business around gathering of assets and, and getting people to trade. That's how they've made money. The, the challenge with that is that they are brokerage businesses. They're not software, right? So they're not experts in building, you know, great software experiences. Um, and they don't know how to build, you know, a user-centric product to some extent. That's not their core business. And so that's kind of been one end of the spectrum. And then the other end, you have things like Yahoo Finance, which cropped up and was good. And then, you know, they did ads and blah, blah, blah. And the ownership's turnover. And like many Yahoo assets, um, unfortunate things have happened to once great products. And then you've had a few other, you know, things that were really specific point to point, like vertical solutions that, you know, oh, I want to look up like what a hedge fund owns, or I want to like look up SEC filing. So like that have looked at very specific use cases and have built websites or tools to do that. So that was generally the landscape. And I don't think anyone came along and really said, hey, I want to raise capital to build really just a more modern version of like, <laughs> you know, people use Bloomberg as an example, but I think it's not just really Bloomberg. It's like a blend of, you know, Bloomberg meets like a CapIQ, FactSet, 
some of these other, it, it's kind of a blended solution where you can't just have you know, some of those for people who know the space, like some of those solutions are just like financials. So you go to them, you look up a company and there's just financials. Yeah. You need something that that's like one use case, right? But you need something that lets you do market monitoring, which means you have content and quotes and charting and things like that. It lets you do financial analysis. Um, it lets you, you know, compare companies, things like that. So it's kind of, it needs to be a more encompassing solution. And the only thing really that existed that had kind of quality market monitoring, quality content, the available data and tools was really Bloomberg. And then some of the other, you know, call it $10,000 a year solutions like Catholic Effects that they don't have content, for example. So they're missing like key pieces that for a lot of retail investors, like those would be issues, right? If you had a platform yeah. where it was just financial information, there's no news at all, right? That's a huge missing use case. So there was this bifurcated landscape and kind of we came along and said, hey, you know, we think we can actually just build from the ground up a full kind of robust platform. There's a real gap in the market here between um, these these brokerage platforms, you know, the Yahoo Finances of the world and some of these institutional um, legacy solutions. Seeing this opportunity, Eric, who did you decide to work with on actually building this out? So in the early days, we um, just kind of hired some contract engineers that I had through my network to start building and iterating on the initial MVP. So, you know, the, I think the best way to get going is, is often to just get going. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, you just hire people and start building a very basic version of the product just to have something candidly even to, to show, you know, investors and use potential users, things like that, because, you know, it's hard for often that that's like a just useful tool to have um, in order to raise initial capital. Yeah, it is so difficult. Uh, you need to have something, I mean, especially in this type of thing, just to prove out you can you can actually build a product. And then obviously there's more that the team develops along the way and a lot goes into that. One thing that we haven't discussed yet is, is getting these users. How have you gotten users for Adam Finance? I mean, has it, how's that evolved over the last couple of years? I'm curious about that too. Well, initially it was really just kind of sending out to people I knew in, in like the hedge fund space and investment world and some blogs and like things like that, that I just knew as a, you know, public market investor and user of a lot of other products that, you know, Oh, there's this finance group listserv. And it was really things like that to get the initial users. And then, you know, from there kind of word of mouth took off and, and people start to enjoy the product. And, and some of that came also as we, you know, made the product more robust. Like if, if you go back, I mean, we don't, there's nobody can see this, but like maybe we have screenshots somewhere, but the initial product was like pretty basic, right? Because, this is the sort of product that takes a while to build up and improve. And, you know, it, it's really hard to like, I don't believe in going into a back room and, and building for three years and then showing up and saying, hey, look at my amazing product, which no user has ever seen or commented on. I, I don't yeah. think that's a good way to go about building something. So I think you get what you think an MVP is out the door. Um, you expose it to users, you get feedback and you iterate quickly and ship quickly. And so that's what we did. And obviously, as a function of that, you know, the product has, I think, gotten, uh, you know, significantly more robust and, and better over the last you know, two years. And obviously, we built a mobile product and launched that as well. So, you know, I think from that experience of the product getting better, we actually had a lot of early users who saw the earlier version of the product, maybe said, oh, this is too basic for my needs or, you know, it'd be great to have all these other things. I'll check back <laughs> and, and kind of evolved with us as we've made the product better and therefore have become you know, somewhat evangelist for the product. Yeah, and then today, with that as well, as obviously the product has evolved, then today, what does that look like? You're obviously not just uh, messaging your friends necessarily uh, in the industry to grow Adam Finance now. I'm curious as to maybe what that kind of looks like today in terms of the strategy behind uh, growing the product. 
Yeah, now we have, uh, you know, a full growth team and, you know, we're pretty focused on, you know, traditional digital channels, as, but as well as, you know, especially in the finance space, there's a lot of like affiliate partners that, that we have that, um, you know, whether it's wealth advice or things like that, that are really relevant to us. Um, so that's kind of been the, the focus. You know, we um, are also very cognizant of getting the right type of user, if that makes sense. You know, there's a large space out there of retail investors and also folks who use Atom in the context of a work environment. And, you know, we think it's a large addressable audience, but certainly there are segments of, of the retail market that we you know, really don't care about. And there's certain types of users who, uh, you know, we aren't as focused on, right? So, you know, if someone's trying to just, you know, throw 5k into a bunch of call options and kind of gamble, that's not really an ideal user for us. Uh, <laughs> we're more focused on people who want to like build wealth, build assets and, even if they're newer investors, you know, they're, they're looking to become more sophisticated over time. And then as well as that, we have, you know, folks who work at Fortune 500 companies, folks who work at hedge funds, folks who work in PE investment banking who use Atom, um, whether on web or on mobile, uh, as part of, uh, you know, various workflows and, and in, in their day job. One thing I'm really curious about, because seeing what was on the market already and having, you know, last year I graduated from MBA in 2020 and I've seen CapIQ, I saw Bloomberg, all these different tools mm -hmm. and knowing how expensive they are. How did you think about pricing and getting to the price you have today? I'd be really curious to hear more about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting question. I think, so the space historically has had this view and, and this is actually symptomatic of just the way costs are passed. So traditionally, I think the space has basically said, what's the maximum we can charge for this service? And, <laughs> and let's take 5% price increase every year. And the reason that works for a while is that in a lot of cases, the fees for these platforms are actually passed on to LPs, right? Uh, or end customers, right? So an investment bank, as an example, frequently the uh, pro rata cap IQ you know, spend for the month of the deal that it's live is actually expense to the client, right? If you look at hedge fund lands or mutual fund lands or whatever it is, like those fees are, are bundled as research costs and expense to the limited partners, right? So in a lot of cases, people don't really give a shit if these things cost a lot of money or the prices go up, right? Which is obviously like a really, really bad incentive structure and has allowed, I think, prices to get out of whack. So that's, that's changing actually, right? Just because like, the number of hedge funds is shrinking, it's in decline, banks have cut seats, blah, blah, blah. So there is actually finally some like pricing pressure, I think, on some of these platforms. But when you have a situation where you have such a large kind of pricing headroom, you know, there's a bunch of ways, you know, you could price kind of a little bit below or, or what have you. Our view has always been, look, we want to build a great product. We think if we build a great product, we can use it and get addicted to it. It's a sticky sort of solution. And we want to charge a price that... Initially, people were like, okay, this is really accessible. And like, they just get over the hub and get used to paying for it. Um, and look, over time, we'll add more functionality. You know, we have different types of users with different ability uh, and willingness to pay, depending on certain features, depending on whether they use it for work or not. And so you'll see more kind of, not that prices will necessarily take up price dramatically, but you'll see more sophistication with our pricing in terms of aligning pricing for different types of features that have different sorts of, you know, use cases. Um, so that's what we're going to do. But I think, you know, initially our view was always, and the product was free actually before we charged them. It was free for like a year. Yeah. And our view there was, let's build a great product. Let's get it out there. Let's make it super accessible. We can introduce pricing later as we continue to learn about our product and our user base.
Yeah, and pricing always evolves. I was just talking this morning with the founder of Chargebee, raised like $105 million. And uh, they've obviously built a really big business, but it took nine years to get to this point. And the pricing from them has shifted so dramatically over time. And they've tested different things out. And to your point of like the value providing and how you can pay, how someone will pay for that and what the differences will be and how you structure the tiers of pricing potentially. And it's, it's a fascinating world to, to figure out all of that. And a lot goes into that, but ultimately it's like testing as well. It's really a big part of it. And you just can't like, I mean, it's one of those things where like, you just don't know until it's yeah. live, until you spend a lot of time with users and you get more data. And so it has to necessarily evolve because you can never, it's not possible to go to market initially with what will ultimately you know, be your final you know, goal for pricing because, and, and frankly, just because users need to evolve with that as well. Uh, and it could be that, that sophisticated pricing with tiers and different things, different costs for different features. That's a, you know, end goal that you want to get to, but it, it's just too complicated for something to launch with. With your experience in your your previous role and now obviously being an entrepreneur with, with item finance, how has your previous role influence your decision-making process or how you think about building this company? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually think it might be more of the reverse, which is if I ever go back to, uh, which I probably will at some point, like public markets or, or just investing in general, I think I've become a much, much better and more thoughtful investor having been an operator. But I'll say, you know, the, the good thing about being an investor is that you, you learn to quickly kind of dive into a space or field, do research and like come to a conclusion. Um, and so I think generally speaking, I'm, you know, I have decent understanding of a lot of different areas of build, building a business and, and, and I'm quickly able to learn and adapt. And so I think that makes you, that like versatility makes you, uh, gives you some advantage as, as an operator. I think the one challenge that people will have transitioning from an investing role to an operating role, if they haven't done it before, is you need to shift from a passive observer mentality to an active get shit done mentality. I think yeah. that's really hard because it's really easy to sit there and like, okay, I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to you know, evaluate a space and you can do that. You can do that forever, right? But that ultimately doesn't build the business, right? You need to actually get things done. You need to hire people. You need to close deals. You need to build a product. And I think transitioning that mentality from um, you know, the, the passive orientation to the active orientation is, is challenging. That's something you have to work through. I think the good thing is once you get through that initial pain, you have a real team and you've raised real capital. I do think, you know, having been an investor does teach you something about how you should spend your time as a CEO in terms of thinking about, you know, allocating capital, hiring, what, you know, ROI of, of decisions. I think that framework is, is super useful, but it's definitely not probably as useful in the very early stages. I'd say that's more of like a, you know, series B ish or later type of, um, you know, advantage that you'll have as a investor. And I think on the reverse, I think once you go from operating to investing, I think you just become so much more thoughtful about the types of questions you would ask a management team. Uh, and I think a simple way of defining it would be, I, I would now ask very much less questions about actually like financial <laughs> performance or things like that, and much more about culture, um, hiring practices, things like that. Because I think in the end of the day, a lot of times those financials that investors are always obsessed with are, are actually quite a lagging indicator for what's actually happening in the business. I think there's better ways to get at what's actually going on. Um, and I think having been an operator, you'll, you'll tend to understand much better. 
Yeah, and that's actually one of the la- the next things I wanted to dive into was was the hiring culture side of it because I think for you know for every CEO, I mean that's you're fundraising, you're you're hiring and firing, you're doing sales essentially in some capacity. So on the hiring and culture side of things, with it being your first company and really you're saying you've learned mm-hmm. a bit in that, what's been helpful that you've learned along the way uh, in the hiring kind of culture side of things? Yeah, I think the. In the beginning, you just don't know what you're looking for, right? It's kind of like, <laughs> I always say a joke that like hiring and dating are like the same thing. They're, they're pretty similar. And it's always like in the beginning, like you just have no idea. You think you know what you're looking for, <laughs> but you really have no idea because then you meet with a bunch of people and then you're like, oh, okay. Like, no, this is not good. I actually, I thought I needed this, but I don't actually need this. I need that. So that's like the first, you know, in the beginning, especially for new roles, like we, we always go through this pain. Like, we, you know, we just hired for new type of function recently like it's the classic you waste a month and a half trying to figure out what you actually need and filling it out and then eventually you you start to understand what the different um elements of that role might be and then you better define what the ideal archetype candidate is for that role and so in the beginning when you've never hired before uh you really don't understand that at all Um, so whether especially like you know engineering hiring let's take that as an example Um, i never hired an engineer in fact i had never managed anyone Uh, because at my funds, you know, everyone's kind of, they're just an analyst. And so I never, I've like never managed another person. Right. So that's like step one is understanding how to, you know, that whole hiring someone, managing them, that, that was all totally new to me because it's not something I had done, you know, in my previous life. So I think it's really about understanding how to build a good hiring process and funnel. I think in engine, you know, with respect to engineering hiring, it's actually something that is somewhat, I don't want to say mechanical, but it's very solvable in the sense yeah. that you can, ha- you know, it's it's really like engineering hiring is really about like numbers and funnel and like there is a way to make it kind of a machine. I think we've done a good job of that now at this point, Adam. But in the beginning, it's just really hard because you don't know what, you know, what type of engineer you want. You don't know what type of archetype. And then I think the second point is, you know, the first, you know, everyone says this, but, it, it, you know, I'll double down on it. The, the early people you hire at your company are, are the most important, right? They set the culture, they set the tone. And so there is some fear of getting that wrong. Um, but ultimately, I think you need people who are both like understanding of what they need to do and like have a clear cut role, but can be very good generalists and just can have that get shit done mentality. Because at a very early stage company, right, you, that's what you need, right? So you can't have people who are like, oh, I was hired to this exact thing. And then they need to do something else for, you know, because that's what's necessary. And then they don't want to do that. So you people are very sharp, very versatile, have a get shit done mentality um, and are willing to just do what is necessary to get the business to the next level. Yeah, that's so, so important, the hiring side of it. And if you get that wrong, it's it's going to be a pain for quite some time within that as well. Today, and you know, this is 2021 now, looking at where Adam Adam is at this point, what are your biggest challenges or what are the things that keep you up at night now? I still think hiring. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> you know, getting, getting the right people is always super challenging. Um, I think we have, luckily, we've now built you know, more of, I think, a brand name and you know, we've raised more money, so it's easier to get people to join. But I, I don't think that ever, like hiring good people ever stops. Um, and, you know, it's the classic that, again, another, uh, you know, phrase that people use, but it's true. But, you know, if you if you hire great people, they tend to bring on board, you know, incremental great people. And if you don't and you hire poorly, that tends to lead to catastrophe. And those people tend to hire even worse people. So you want to make sure that you're hiring 
only A plus players, um, and I think compensating people well um, and making sure that they they have a large equity ownership in the business. And that's always been, you know, you asked earlier my, my philosophy. You know, I, I've studied. I think the, you know, if you want a good case study, and they've maybe stumbled a little bit recently, but I think the three G guys um, in Brazil are, are super interesting, and they have a philosophy of compensating people super aggressively and promoting people very young. Um, and giving them pretty little cash comp relative to their, you know, level of role, but they're pretty high in terms of aggressive performance-oriented equity compensation that maybe has gotten them into trouble in some of these businesses recently. But I, I believe fundamentally in that philosophy of performance-oriented, you know, heavy equity compensation. And, you know, those are the kind of people we want to hire because we want people who want to win and want to build a great company and want to profit and be, you know, rewarded and, you know, via ownership in the business as the business does well. And so I think figuring out what you want your comp philosophy to be in your company is like a really important thing to establish early on. So I still think hiring great people, making sure that the team is structured properly and that, you know, I'm doing a good job empowering people to, uh, you know, do their job well and give them the resources necessary to succeed is like the most important thing. I think beyond that, you know, it's really just execution. We're not in a, a space where we're solving you know, uh, the technical problem of like getting a, a rocket to Mars or something like that, right? There's not necessarily technological risk that we're taking. The risk we're taking really is product execution risk um, and, you know, us, right? Like the team risk, if you, if you think about it from an investor standpoint. And so that doesn't bother me because I am high conviction on myself and our team and our ability to execute and build a great product. And I'm high conviction that this is an attractive space with, weak products and a lot of ability to capture value. And so really it's about us amassing the resources and the team necessary to execute um, in this environment. One aspect that we've talked about a little bit, you mentioned having those data partnerships or data providers early mm -hmm. on, it was just a few and having obviously more at this point now. I'd love to hear more about the product today, just in terms of Okay, if someone's looking at why would I use Adam Finance versus the other these other mm -hmm. platforms available, what would you tell them? What's the pitch around that in terms of the actual product and what they're going to get and what this is going to look like and feel like for them? My first answer would be it's better. No, I'm just um, <laughs> no I'd, I'd say we, we've built a easy to use, robust platform that with respect to investing and researching public markets is unrivaled for anything else out there and have married, you know, I think ease of use with um, depth of, the research capability. Um, and so I think we, we've done a good job of that. And I don't think there's another platform in this space that, that does that. And I candidly, I think even the institutional platforms for many use cases that we have, um, we actually solve the actual problem much better. You may have, you know, 38 different combinations that you can graph things or, or pull data in one of those institutional platforms. But for you know, 80% or 90% of the use case that you really care about, I think actually we do a much better job. With being a first-time founder, what's been the most helpful people, resources, et cetera, for you that's been helpful as you've grown the business the last few years? I think other operators and other founders are always going to be the most, you know, as a first-time founder, always the most useful people in terms of helping you navigate specific challenges, whether it's hiring or fundraising and getting advice. So I think people who were operators and founders and are now seed or early stage investors or angels, um, I think it, it is actually, those are the kinds of people you want in your corner. And I think 
make sense to take capital from just because, and even if the checks are small, just because they tend to be the most useful people to lean on if you have questions because they've been there. What does that communication look like with you and your investors in terms of how that typically goes for other founders who may, may be wondering? I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty focused, generally speaking, on, you know, internally, let's put it that way. So I, I communicate with our investors, you know, generally speaking, when I, you know, have a request or, you know, we want to catch up. Um, but I try to, you know, really focus on the company and not necessarily on managing our investor base. And I think our investors, you know, trust me to uh, trust the company to execute and aren't expecting, you know, constant handholding and updates. So, you know, I'd say we're more probably with our investors a bit more hands off maybe. Um, and, and a little less active maybe than some other companies. But, you know, generally speaking, if there's, you know, an investor I know who has, um, you know, connection or, or something that, you know, relationship or, you know, has a suggestion on hiring or something like that, that, you know, is relevant, then, you know, obviously, you know, we ping them aggressively and we leverage our, our investor base. But generally speaking, I like to turn the focus inward. And, and I'm really a big believer in like, no one's going to build your business for you. Yeah, <laughs> I think people who people who think that they're going to get some fancy investor on board and that's going to help them build a company or uh, they're very wrong. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, <laughs> you know, ultimately, I think it's super important to have a great investor base and to be well capitalized. And I think leveraging your, your investors in the right way, whether that's for a specific intro or uh, a candidate referral, things like that, that's like, you know, great. And that's how you should use them. But I don't, don't think anyone should expect that, you know, specific investors can help you build your product or you know, build your business. Yeah, that's a small, 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 small percentage of what uh, what they're going to be useful for is I, mostly just you and your team building the company. And that's kind of how it goes. I, I'm curious as to with every founder, and especially when you're a venture backed founder, uh, high growth companies, how do you charge? How do you kind of make sure you're performing your best each day, Eric? Great question. I think the, you know, Buffett always, uh, Buffett has said this a bunch of times, he always jokes like, he, if you look at his calendar, it's like blank. Uh, not that my calendar is blank, but I think focusing on like what really matters, there's very few decisions that you actually need to make a week. And there's very few things that are actually important, especially as a CEO that like you really need to do, right? Like, you know, if you close one good hire in a week or, you know, you have a, one, a good investor conversation or, you know, you have a really good sales call or something like that, those could be super, super high impact uh, conversations that maybe only take 20 or 30 minutes, Right. And so I think it's focusing on the high ROI time you spend and like those conversations that really matter and not getting bogged down with all the minutia of daily team meetings or, or a lot of the nonsense. I think most people probably cut their, you know, the number of things in the calendar, like 70, 80% and essentially have no impact because I think generally <laughs> most meetings are a huge waste of time. And so I think it's, it's really about focusing, especially as a CEO, like I think you really need to focus your attention on the high impact um, decisions and high impact conversations that you need to have. And some people really like, it's two part thing, right? Obviously one, you have to identify what those, you know, what is high impact and what's low impact, forget the low impact stuff, and then really focus on executing well on the high impact things. And if you do that, you'll, you know, be less stressed on just bouncing between zoom call, you know, every 30 minutes, you know, you have 10 <laughs> zoom calls a day. Like that's yeah. not a sustainable lifestyle. Like you do not want to be doing that. You want to have, you know, several high impact conversations or tasks that you need to do and focus on that. I think if you do that, you will just generally be happier and, and more relaxed. How do you how do you process that? Or how do you prioritize those things? Or do you have a process in place for separating high impact, low impact? Do you look at that on a day-to-day -day basis, a week-to-week -week basis? I'm just curious on how you've kind of gone about that, at least personally. 
Yeah, it used to be, especially, and I think again, it evolved, it changes as the company evolves. Like earlier on, I was very like in the weeds on everything, right? I had tons of meetings, you know, little product things, things like that. As obviously the company evolves, I think it's important for you to abstract yourself a little bit um, and to empower the people you've hired to do their job, right? And to not micromanage. So I think you really need to like that. For me, that's actually a challenge because I'm, uh, perfectionist and like, I'm super, you know, I'm always in the weeds on everything. I'm obsessed with our product and, you know, I use it super heavily. So I am our biggest critic and I'm always in the weeds on product things, but you know, that's been a challenge for me. And I always am like trying to be cognizant of making sure I'm not micromanaging and I'm not too much in the weeds and kind of abstracting myself. So I I do focus on that. Um, And I would say, look, with, with respect to what's important, I think each company and each founder is, you know, unique, but I think it's pretty obvious for the person to see what it is. For me, it's always, you know, very simple, which is really hiring, um, hiring combos and, you know, big customer conversations. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty focused now on uh, some B2B offerings that we've built out and we're having, you know, partnership conversations. So those sorts of conversations are obviously high impact and, and are very important. And then, you know, fundraising conversations are always important. Uh, it's important to maintain a good cadence with investors. You shouldn't, like, let it dominate your schedule and shouldn't be the only thing you're doing. But, you know, those are important, especially with folks you've built a rapport with and have a relationship with. So those are, like, the three really, you know, I think those are always the three core areas. Have there been any particular books that have been impactful for you, whether it be personal or professional? Um, in terms of founding a company, I would say... There is a good, uh, the, I'm, for, I'm, no, I'm forgetting the name, but the, the 3G book is actually really good. Um, it kind of walks through some of their early deals and just kind of um, how they think about things. So I would say that with respect to um, building a company is, is, is a good read. And just find, one of the final questions I have is just what are kind of the next steps or big vision you have for Adam Finance moving forward? Our, I mean, our singular goal is to expose as much institutional quality tools and content to as large an audience as possible. And so that's, you know, taken so far, um, you know, been done, I should say, via, you know, our own platform. We are going to be partnering with other financial institutions and integrating some of our capabilities into their platforms to kind of double down on that mission and to accelerate our distribution. Um, So that is kind of the next stage of, of, of Adam is really leveraging Adam's capabilities in the context of other platforms. And we're super excited about that because it's going to let us get distribution scale beyond, you know, what we could do as a, you know, just ourselves, um, you know, and and in terms of just growing our, uh, you know, own user base. So very excited about that and very excited about the ability to help some uh, companies who maybe aren't as deep on the space. Maybe they're a neobank, maybe they're a legacy kind of just traditional bank and they're looking to, you know, differentiate, in the self-directed investment and retail investing space and to provide a better, more sophisticated software experience to the users. So super excited about partnering with those companies to help them uh, you know, better satisfy their user base. Eric, where can people go to learn more about Adam Finance and connect with you as well? They can uh, go on our website, <laughs> uh, which is adam.finance. If they want to just learn more about the, the company, obviously encourage them to, you know, there's an app, so you can download the app on the app store um, or sign up on web. There's a web platform as well. And if anyone wants to ping me, they can uh, DM me on LinkedIn or email me at uh, eric at adam.finance. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Eric. 
Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.